everyone, and welcome to another amazing episode of The Joy of Being for busy working moms and women in business and beyond who are seeking to unplug from their worries and overwhelm to light up with insight and joy. I, your host, mom, and effortless lifestyle coach, Marina Pearson, talk to transformational professionals, business owners, and creatives about what it really takes to have a business and life you can truly enjoy. And remember, you can find me on Instagram at Marina Pearson or my Facebook group, The Joy of Being. And if you'd like a more personalized touch to live a stress-free life, then why not find out more about The Joy of Being Retreat, an intimate four-day profound experience at a luxury venue in Javier, Spain, where you get to experience your inner calm and peace of mind by slowing down and making space. To find out more, email me at marina, marinapearson.com with Joy of Being Retreat in the title. And on today's show, I have the beautiful educator, Tana Studley. Tana recovered from PTSD out of sheer desperation by exploring the nature of thought on her own in the 1980s, alongside a very successful Academy Award winning career in Hollywood, where she worked on movies such as uh, Abe. Uh, She worked closely with John Travolta. She's been counseling and coaching people using the ideas ever since. She now lives in Jerusalem where she helps people find their innate health using the three principles. Tana is a certified life coach, a graduate of the One Thought Institute, and attended the Pranskin Associates Professional Training Retreat. She is also a World Health Organization Psychological First Aid Responder. Her first novel, The Myth of Low Self-Esteem, A Story of PTSD, Hollywood and Healing is now available. So what I loved about Chana was um, actually what I loved about the conversation that we had was um, how we shifted the way that most people look at PTSD um, and how she sees it. We also talked about her new book, called the myth of low self-esteem and we talk about self-esteem but actually there is no such thing it's just a concept we've created uh, she shares the story around that I really loved the conversation as it allowed me to see things about PTSD and and self-esteem that I'd not seen before so if you do perceptively suffer from self-esteem issues or PTSD and know people that have then this is going to be a great episode for you so welcome Hannah it's beautiful to have you on the show today um Hannah reached out to me a couple of days ago and um, asked if she could come on the show and I got curious about what she was up to in the world and then she shared that she'd written this amazing book and so um, I've spent the last couple of hours going through the excerpts and just fell in love with the character Deborah and of course um, it's a slight uh, biography of Hannah's life <laughs> slight um, but uh, having read the excerpts it made sense to talk about PTSD which is what we're going to be talking about today so welcome lovely to have you here so a wonderful well it kind of occurs to me today a place where we could start is when people say PTSD um, what's your what have you heard people talk about in that regard like what's the normal way of viewing PTSD so for, for people who don't know, PTSD stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's um, a, a medical term that um, was put into the DSM, the Directory of um, Mental Illnesses, that was written in 1984. <laughs> so when I was going through my um, stressful time as a, as a result of some of the violence that I experienced, it wasn't actually, I think it was just going into the medical um, books at that time. So... 
I didn't know anything about it. Like when I was suffering from what they call PTSD, I was just suffering in silence at home. Um, it's now become um, like a household word. And I think traditional therapy um, will say that anybody who's experienced a trauma is going to experience uh PTSD afterwards. Um, but there's a lot of research to show that that's not true, um, that uh, it's not automatic, because depending on how um, someone's well-being is and how what their level of consciousness is, they're, they're not automatically going to be traumatized by something. Because for exa- the, the example I always use, if two people go to, let's say, a wedding, they're going to have completely different experiences of that wedding. You know, one lady's going to be looking at the clothes and, you know, like, wow, the bride looks so beautiful. And, you know, and the other lady's going to be like, wow, the chicken was cold. And like, and she didn't speak to me, you know, so, you know, two people can have completely different experiences of something like a wedding. The same is true for a traumatic experience. What's traumatic to one person is not necessarily traumatic to another person. So that's so because um, people always think like um, like a fatal car accident or, or, you know, that that kind of stuff would be the most traumatic thing. But a police officer who's trained to deal with that is not going to be traumatized. And he's in exactly the same situation, but having a different experience of it. And when you say level of consciousness, could you expand on that for those for those who are listening that may not understand what you're saying? Because <laughs> I didn't a while ago. No, exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so I think I really think it means um, like a level of awareness and how aware I am of the situation. Um, I, I'll give you an example. We had um, Jack Pransky. You know who Jack Pransky is, um, mm-hmm. author. So he came here to Israel to speak at a conference we had um, earlier in the summer. And because he'd never been to Israel before, I offered to give him, you know, be the tour guide and show him around. I I live in Jerusalem for the people who don't know. And um, so I took him to the old city, which is like ancient, ancient, you know, walls and buildings. And and, uh, we bought some tickets to go on a tour, like a little tourist, like walk around the top of the wall that surrounds the city. And this couple had bought tickets at the same time as us and they went ahead of us. And she, the, the lady and the husband who went through, they went through a turnstile. And then they got stuck between a turnstile and a padlock gate. And the husband kind of went, oh, this is weird, you know. And then the woman went catatonic. Her eyes rolled back in her head. And she what we call disassociated and took, fell to her knees in shock. I had no idea what was going through her head, but she had a, a traumatic experience. And her husband was just standing there going, like, oh, what's happening? Right? Because they were stuck between a, a padlock gate and a, and a turnstile. So they weren't in any danger or any trouble. So I actually put my hands through the railings where she was to stabilize her. So it, it was really interesting to watch how some, you know, two people can have completely different experiences of the same situation. Um, and she was, she was, she was traumatized. I, I mean, I'm guessing that her, in her consciousness, she was thinking, you know, I'm in danger. Something's going to happen. They're going to come and get me. I, I have no idea. But, um, so the, the man was, his consciousness was, you know, like we're, we're on tourism, and we're having a holiday and isn't this nice? And isn't the view beautiful? Right? So right. It, it depends where, where your, where your thinking is at. That's how you're going to see the world. So when my thinking is low, I'm probably going to be seeing negative things and seeing danger and seeing trouble. Um, but when, when your consciousness is, is raised up a little bit, you're, you're probably going to be watching the view and thinking how wonderful it is to be here and what an amazing opportunity we're having, you know? So uh, it really depends on, on, I think your outlook on the world is, um, 
is affecting you know how how we experience it so what what have you seen because obviously you live in jerusalem which is a high rate of 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 what we could consider trauma and it's not a you know what considered to be an easy place to live based on what's going on there what have you seen in terms of resilience because obviously here we are we have this title called ptsd but what I understand of human nature and human spirit is that we can go beyond our thinking and see something completely new in, in any given moment. So I'm curious as to what you've seen and things that have surprised you about humanity in terms of being in the place that you're in. Yeah, I think it's been in- incredible to see the resilience in, in a nation of people because, you know, we're surrounded by by a lot of people who, who really don't want us to be here. And um, there's a kind of a a saying here that most Israelis walk around with PTSD just in general as a culture because because they've grown up either because we have conscription here so um so all Israelis between the ages of 18 and 20 or 2021 are in the army girls Mm -hmm. and boys um so pretty much everyone in the country who's grown up here has either has definitely been in the military or been in probably been in combat so most people's fathers, uncles have been in combat at some point. So there's that plus the, um, you know, the uh, sometimes daily things that can happen here. You know, we can go for several weeks without anything happening and then there'll be a, there can be a um, stabbing or, you know, a shooting or something like that. And it's, it's amazing how people just get on with life because it becomes part of life. Um, Obviously if you're near it and you're affected, it's, you know, it's, it's horrendous. But the rest of the country just pulls together and and like and gets on with it. There's like a natural resilience here that it's kind of like by default that we kind of have to because otherwise you just go under. Um, but but like um, you know we have this organization here that I'm a, a volunteer for. It's called Hatzala, and it's made completely of volunteers. And and Israel's the first country in the world to have this um, psychotrauma unit as part of our first responders. And so we are trained to go out and um, and be there for the witnesses and the, you know maybe the, the police officers the the soldiers who are affected by by something happening, um, but it could also be like a domestic thing like for example if you could God forbid imagine your baby's having CPR and the paramedics are working on your baby, then the mother father you know grandparents are going to be traumatized just watching that, so we're, we're trained you know, not just to work with uh, in terrorist situations, but to to help in all kinds of situations. could be a construction accident, a car accident, um, like a, a family situation where people... And, and so the statistics I've learned are that if someone is stabilized in the moment, in a, a, a situation like that, they're 80% less chance of getting PTSD afterwards. I mean, that that's like the traditional approach. But it kind of makes sense because the training we're given is to... Um, bring someone back to the moment, like when they're in that place where they could, you know, disassociate or get, get, you know, become stuck in that loop of reliving that experience over and over again. We're trained to bring them back to the moment to different techniques, and it makes sense that if you do that, then they're less likely to get stuck mm. in that loop of reliving it. Whereas like when when the violence um, happens to me that I wrote about in my book. I didn't have, you know, anybody like saying, you know, trying to bring me back to the moment. I just spent day after day, night after night, reliving the traumas that had happened to me. And so it kind of got that, um, you know, I remember records when the needle got stuck in the, in the groove of the record. 
that's what happened. And it, it dug a deeper and deeper groove where it just become, you know, I, I couldn't not live in that, um, that trauma. And until, so, you know, I was given a way out. I, uh, I wrote a book years ago called the goodbye, Mr. X. And in one of the chapters, I talk about the tractor factor, which is, you know, the tractor that keeps plowing the same field again and again and again and again. But what I really hear is, is that we have this capacity to sort of dig those trenches, right. Of thinking and they become, and they, they look so real to us. And I remember in your book, you know, when you talk about the fact that you had an insight about the fact that it was just a story could you elaborate a little bit on that? Because of course, for anybody that's listening and said, well, I have PTSD or I know somebody that does, it can be quite trite or well, not insulting, but like, no, 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 this is like, you know, this happened to me. And, and so I'd love to hear a little bit more about Deborah's story, um, about how she saw beyond, you know, her circumstances in this, in this book. Deborah, or who's like really me, yeah. my character. <laughs> um, I, I was stuck in that loop of reliving the trauma over and over again. Anytime I'd go near the front door, it was like, <gasps> this, you know, like, you know, two weeks ago, six months ago, they almost killed you. So like it was my, my blood, you know, start pumping and like hypervigilant on the, all those um, things and the sending all those, you know, uh, cortisol and adrenaline into my body. And it was, you know, I, that's why I couldn't sleep. And, and those things can make you really ill you know, if you're living in that, that place all the time. And then um, the best way I can describe it, you know, when you use a hairdryer and it gets too hot and it just cuts out. I think that's what happened to my brain. Like that was the beginning of my, like the, the just relief. Like my brain was so hot with all that really busy overthinking. And then all of a sudden it just went quiet. It was like the hairdryer just, you know, like conked out. <laughs> and it, it kind of like, it just went quiet. And I started seeing with the help of um, a really kind um, uh, mentor who started pointing to me in, into the direction of seeing that I'd been living in this story that I had created in my head. Because like you said, at first I was a little insulted, <laughs> a little hurt. Right. I remember saying to her, but it did happen and it did hurt and I can't get over it. Because <laughs> and, and, my ego was threatened by someone saying, you know, you can, you can leave that behind. You don't have to live in that anymore. And I'm like, no, no, but you don't understand. Like, this is what happened. And so my, my ego had gotten so attached to the story that it almost come part of me. And I was so used to telling that story, you know, and being, the, uh, it depended who I was talking to. If I was talking to a guy, maybe I'd be like, you know, the poor innocent victim. If I was talking to a woman, it may be like, oh, you know, I cope so well. You know, <laughs> I, I knew how to tell my story and get the most attention and sympathy, depending on who I was talking to, you know, like out of it. And it just became like, you know, I, I, I knew I knew how to pace it and the timing. But at the same time, I was also in so much pain and I, I wanted attention but I couldn't let go of it because it had come part of me. Because I remember kind of thinking, if I let go of the story, then who am I? <laughs> because I'd been in it for such a long time that I didn't know how to relate to someone without needing the attention or the sympathy. Like either the attention because I was so heroically courageous or the sympathy for what terrible things had happened to me. And, um, and it, it, was, it was kind of threatening at first. It, it really was. But I think like with most ideas, like new ideas that I've come across, at first they're kind of threatening and I kind of like, you know, get very, got very defensive. And 
the more I got defensive, the more I realized, what am I defending? <laughs> this is like, you know, um, it's funny because when I tell people the story these days of what happened to me, they go, oh my gosh, that's terrible. I'm like, but I'm okay. And it was 30 years ago. So I, I'm okay. Why are you upset? It's incredible. Like the amount of, um, <laughs> you know, like why are we upset about things that are just not happening right now, right here in this moment, I'm totally safe. So, but I, I really, um, when you were asking that question, the word that came into my head was innocent. It was an innocent misunderstanding of what was happening to me. You know, I got stuck in this loop of, um, they call it like a trauma loop. And, and I got instantly got stuck in it and then thought that was reality. And, and mine got so bad that um, I got to the point where I was terrified to go out the house because I knew something terrible would happen to me. It, it, you know, I had evidence, you know, like, look, see, I've got a broken neck and, and, and like fractured, you know, like I had a lot of broken bones as a result of the things that happened to me. So I, I had x-rays. You can't tell me it didn't happen. <laughs> but then I started seeing how um, the story that I was telling myself was, wasn't actually about what happened. It was about what happened after, people's reactions, how people didn't behave the way I think they should have done. And I think that's what I started reliving. And that was almost the pain of it was, um, was like the injustice of it and, and like me being the innocent victim. And, and I got really stuck on that for a while. And, um, and then as, this, as the story went on, there really were chapters in how I recovered from it. You know, at first being willing to believe that, okay, I don't need the story for you to like me or to be friends with me or to, to get on in life mm. and have relationships. But I can actually have relationships and friendships without you needing to know that I went through this terrible thing. That was like a whole like learning experience. And then when I started training, um, I trained as a counselor to um, help other people. And I used my story to, for identification and helping people, you know, to see that they could get well also, that the more I explained to other people what had happened to me, the more I really understood myself that I had been torturing myself with the story that I had created. And so if I'm doing that, then I can let go of it. You know, it's, it's, I'm the only one who's doing that to myself. Those, the people that hurt me, you know, they're not here now. So therefore I'm, I'm hurting myself. And it doesn't mean it didn't happen. And it did hurt. And I did have a hard time letting go of it, but you know, I have, it's, it's really not part of me anymore. It's, it's almost like a movie I watched. I can be that neutral to it. Yeah. And what I'm getting, what I'm sensing is that actually who would I be without the story is space is, is mental space is mental freedom. It's, that's mm-hmm. actually something like what comes to mind is of course, as you worked on the movie, um, with John Travolta, Michael, um, it gave you wings. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 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 In fact, often when I tell my story, um, to groups or, you know, I, I spoke with Mara, uh, Mara, um, Gleason at the one, one solution conference recently at, um, at the university, and um, people always ask me after, like, wow, where did you find the courage? Where did you find the courage? Whether it was, you know, to deal with the violence that I experienced or um, leaving a big Hollywood career or changing countries. You know, people always ask me, where did you get the courage from? So I, um, I thought about that and I thought, you know, I'm going to put on my three principles head and think about this. Where does courage come from? You know, and I started thinking about it and I thought, well, courage must be a thought. And I thought, 
no, that doesn't sit right. Courage, courage isn't a thought. Courage is an absence of thought. Because when you have courage, that, that busy thinking stops, it slows down. And like you just said, that's where the, the inspiration and the wisdom and the, and the resilience and all that stuff can come through. The peace of mind comes through when the thinking slows down. And I think that for me is courage when you like fall into that place of no thought, when you fall into that place where the, the, the thinking has stopped, then you can have a clear thought like, oh, this would be the right thing to do. And there's no debate. And I, for me, that's like, that's where the courage comes in. At least that's my experience of it. It sounds to me that it just kind of made sense to you at the time to just do that next thing. Yeah. Which we all have the capacity for, right? Yeah, yeah, everybody does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the more the more you trust that, the little bit easier it is to do the next time. Because, like, when I, um, like, the first, I don't know, big thing I did was like, like, leaving. I, I was living in Manchester when I, you know, had a lot of the violence experiences, and I moved down to London, like, just moving you know, cities on my own at first was, that was, you know, very scary. Um, But I did that. And then the first time I, you know, walked into, you know, a job interview in London, you know, that was, every time you do a first one, it's a bit like, you know, scary. And then every time you do, you go like outside that comfort zone and you realize you're absolutely fine. Any of the trepidation, the anxiety, the nervousness was all going on up here. I was manufacturing a lot of what I thought was going to happen, which usually doesn't, you know, and once you've gone through, like walked through that a few times, it does start to get a little bit easier, I think, in, in my experience. And then you start being able to do things that, you know, a while ago, I, I, know, if I, I couldn't even leave the house and now I'm doing this and now I'm changing countries, you know, now I'm changing careers, you know, it just starts to become normal. And so it's like normal to me now to um, like even writing a book. Like I didn't know I could do that. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, when people ask me, you know, that being so like courageous in terms of these other things, I think actually the, the, the scariest thing I've done in a long time was showing someone what I'd written. <laughs> like when I sent it to a friend and I press click, like send on the computer. I was like, oh, no, oh, no. what have I done? What have I done? <laughs> I felt so vulnerable in that moment. I was like, be nice to me if it's terrible. <laughs> you know, and because it's like I was exposing myself in a way that I'd never done before. I've never written anything. I didn't know I was I could write. I mean, I'm hoping I can <laughs> now that I've done it. Um, and and the most amazing thing I want to tell you this. Um, when I wrote this story, I thought at the time, this was it, you know, my one book, everybody has one book inside of them. And I put all my stories from my life into it. And, and I thought I better, I better do the best I can do because this is it. You know, I'm not a writer. I, um, you're, you're English. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? right. So you understand I got English language O level I failed four times. I got four D's at my English language O level when you know it's 16. Um, so I've never thought of myself as an academic person. I, I realize this is another story I've been telling myself. It's really comes clear to me now. But my whole life I told myself I was not an academic person. I can't spell, I can't write, you know, school of it told me so. And so writing this one book was like, that's it, you know? And then the day after I wrote it, I printed it out to give to a friend to, to read, to give me some feedback. 
And the next day I woke up with the idea for four more stories, four more books, four more, you know, like completely fiction, completely made up. And I was like, where did that come from? You know? So it's like, once I released this idea that I'm not a writer and I, I, I kind of accepted that, okay, I've just written something more came. There was like, like courage. Like when she step across that threshold out of your comfort zone, then more courage comes because really, like you said, it's there all the time. It wasn't that I was never a writer. It's just I didn't, I didn't tap into it. So therefore, I didn't really know. It's not that I wasn't courageous before. I just didn't know because I didn't, you know. So that's been an amazing experience recently of seeing how, um, how I still can innocently, you know, like believe the, my own stories I tell myself in my head and then find out they're actually not true. And, and you know, new things are happening that I could not have never have imagined. You're like, I get to do. <laughs> I can totally relate to that, and um, I'm sure that the listeners can too. Um, I used to have extra lessons at school because I used to be given, like, any essay that I had to write, I would get hot sweats and, and be paralyzed. I wouldn't know what to write. So I actually had extra classes to help me with my writing. Mm-hmm. And now I've just sent my third book off to the publisher and and it's just this interesting um experience of, of of things that you never thought you would be doing it's almost like a surprise to you it's like oh okay well what else is possible what else is possible for me um and this kind of ties into the title of your book which is self-esteem and the, and the myth of self-esteem and um <clears throat> I know that we haven't really named it as self-esteem, but everything that we've been talking about today kind of revolves around that theme. But interestingly enough, you call it a myth. So I'd love to sort of explore that, what you mean by it being a myth, because I hear, you know, I hear the word self-esteem be banded around left, right, and center day in, day out. Mm-hmm. Um, low self-esteem, high self-esteem. You know, you read all the books around children. For them to have a good self-esteem, you have mm-hmm. to do this and that. So I'm curious about why you call that the myth of self-esteem and what's been your take on that. Sure. Um, so I lived in California for um, about 16 years when I was working in the film business. and. Um, And living in L.A., I was surrounded by people who were always talking about their low self-esteem. And being British, (laughs) (laughs) fresh off the the boat, I found this hilarious because I'd never met such a bunch of self-obsessed, self-possessed, self-centered people in my life. And they're all talking about their low self-esteem. And I was like, you don't have low (laughs) self-esteem. I mean, like, so I, I, I said to my friends, I said, threaten, like, one day I'm going to write a book called The Myth of Low Self-Esteem because I, I, that's not what I'm seeing and hearing here, right? So what I saw them, when I, when I would um, do counseling work in between movies and when I was talking to people, what I kind of found when I asked them enough questions when they talked about their low self-esteem was they were really resentful that the world wasn't treating them right that either in a relationship or the boss or the neighbors or or whoever, you know, they felt they should be treated better, which is really what they were complaining about. And so 
So then I would say to them, then, then that means you think you should be treated better. So that means your, your, your self-esteem is probably pretty good then because someone who has low self-esteem would be okay with being treated badly because they would think that was normal. You know, if you think you're a piece of dirt and people treat you like a piece of dirt, then that would make sense. It would only hurt if someone treats you like a piece of dirt and you think you're worth better than that. Right? So that's why I called it a myth because... Your self-esteem, I don't mean you, but like the people I was talking to, their self-esteem must be pretty high to think it was wrong to be treated down here, to not get that job, to be dumped by the boyfriend or to whatever, you know, that was, was um, you know, painful thing they were going through. And so I started seeing that really it was different levels of thinking, like, like consciousness that we were talking about before, that it's not that people didn't feel bad everybody can feel bad. I can wake up in, in a funk sometimes if, you know, like just depending on what's going on. So, but what's happening is, is my thinking is get, is getting lower. And sometimes your thinking can be in the basement, you know, like it can be really dark. But the reason I call it a, a myth of low self-esteem is because that, that pure, um, people use different words for it, but like that soul, that inner being, that well-being, that resilience, that, that amazing part of you, can never, um, never get broken, dark, you know, lost, mm. need to be fixed. It's just the thinking that's going up and down. So in, in, in the book, I have a, um, a client that I'm talking to, and, and she's kind of like an amalgamation of many people that I met when I was in California. Who, and I, I basically said to her, I was like, you don't have low self-esteem, you just think you do. <laughs> because some therapist had told her or some boyfriend had done something bad and she didn't like it or whatever. And, um, and, and I found it at first very hard to explain this to people because they were so stuck on that psychobabble um, label, you know, way of describing themselves. And I started trying to say to them, so your thinking is, is low right now, but that's not who you are. It's just where you're at at this moment. You know, no, nobody is garbage, right? No, nobody. No, no. Everybody has that amazing, pure soul, that that energy, that that light that um, is inside everyone, like a candle. You know, that can't go out, and everybody has it. It's just gotten covered up right now by some stinking thinking, by some, you know, like some some misunderstandings and some some interpretations of what's gone on in your life. And it, it doesn't describe who you are. It just describes where you're at. Um, so that's why, um, I think I don't like the, or the whole label thing is because people then take those labels and then think that that's who they are. I am my, you know, I am my depression. I am my, you know, psychological, you know, dysfunctional label, whatever it is like, cause there's like, well, I don't know, 450 labels out there now for, you know, you know, bipolar and, and, you know, um, all these different personality disorders and stuff. They may be describing where you're at but they're not describing who you are. And that to me gives so much hope because then you can get back to, you know, when the thinking slows down, then, then that, that, you know, that peaceful, beautiful, wise part of you can come out that was always there in the first place. Hmm. And it kind of begs the question, what the self is and who the self is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even if there is a self, so I'm curious about that um, because if it is all thought and we're not our bodies and we're not our thinking, then when we talk about self, 
what I've come to see as self is this made up character that we have in our heads about who we think we are Mm -hmm. as opposed to what we're capable of and the true meaning of, you know, the true identity of, 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 of that. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I'm kind of curious about what the self is to you. So (laughs) I'm going to, um, borrow a quote from George Pramsky and say that that's probably above my pay grade to answer (laughs) 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 because I I could spout some beautiful philosophical answer but that's what it might be for me and I'm not even sure I have an answer but I wouldn't want it to then people say like oh well I'm not you know because they compare themselves to that but Mm. because I think the way you just described it was beautiful I mean, I, I've had moments where I've really felt um, like not here. <laughs> that makes sense, but in a good way, you know? Like you're so busy in something like, you know, it could be, a creative, it could be cooking, it could be, you know, so, looking at a beautiful view. And you forget you're in your body and you forget that you're, you know, like like if you're watching a movie on a on an airplane and you forget you're on the airplane, you know, if it's a good enough movie, you know, <laughs> you know. So those are beautiful moments where we kind of like, and then we come back into ourselves and come back into our bodies. And, you know, and that can happen several times a day, you know, several times an hour. And, and I didn't even, I didn't even know of such things, you know, a while ago. So um, it's, it's such a, um, a great journey to just keep enjoying and experiencing the, those possibilities that are, like you said, are there all the time. But I, I don't know that I'd give any, um, like I said, it's a bit above my pay grade to give, give a real in-depth <laughs> philosophical answer to that question, to get myself into trouble. You know, what came to mind when you were speaking about, you know, your story and so forth and so on and what had happened to you and, well, you worked in the movies. And I guess that's kind of a beautiful metaphor, right, for how we experience life in that, there are these characters and then they come in and, but it's a movie. It's not real. Right. It's funny you should say that because when I first came around through principles and I would um, be in a class or, you know, listening to something and, and without fail, all the, all the people I heard at the beginning, they would use um, special effects as an example of explaining, you know, how the mind works. And often people would say, like, imagine a lion walked in the room. And I thought, um, I made a lion for George of the Jungle <laughs> like, when I was doing special effects. Um, so I made one. And people thought it was real. <laughs> that was my job. Um, they say, imagine a tiger walked in the room. Um, I made a tiger for Dr. Doolittle with Eddie Murphy. <laughs> so, and I made plenty of monsters for other things, too. So, um, like my job in, in Hollywood was to, um, I did animatronics and I, I mostly worked for Jim Henson's Creature Shop. You know. Oh, wow. How cool is that? Yeah, it's very cool. <laughs> so, um, so Henson's Creature Shop, um, there was one in London in Camden. That's where I started. And um, so, so Jim Henson invented Kermit and Miss Piggy. And all yeah, that he stuff. did. <laughs> right. So I, I know all the movie stars. <laughs> So, um, so Kermit and Miss Piggy are in New York. They're done in the workshop in New York. So in London and Los Angeles, we made the um, monsters and creatures that were used in other people's movies. So we, people hired us to, um, to make those things. So I was known for making copies of real animals. 
So my job was like, if there was a movie that had an animal in it that either um, uh, needed to talk or get run over by a truck, you know, do things that animals either can't do or are not allowed to do, then we'd make a copy of exactly that dog or elephant or bird or whatever it is. And they would cut from the real animal to my puppet and you won't know the difference. So, um, so some of the movies I worked on, people say that there's no puppets in that movie. I say, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, does your dog talk, you know? And then people say, but that's, that's computers. I'm like, no, this is before. I mean, yes, most of it's all done on computers now, but when I was doing it, you know, 20 years ago, no, it was real puppets with real fur and real motors inside uh, animatronic, you know, and, um, and we did, we spent hours, meticulous hours recreating those animals. Like if you think of a dog, like the hair, like follows a direction on, on a cat, a dog, we put in one hair at a time, like into silicon skins that were stretched over a me- mechanical uh, skull. Wow. To talk and snarl and wiggle his ears and, you know, so, um, yeah, that's, that's what I used to do. So my whole job was to fool you into thinking something was real that wasn't. And I would say, that's what my mind does all the time. <laughs> it's right. into thinking something is real and it's not. You know, it's, it's pretty much all an illusion, you know. So, um, uh, yeah, it's, that, was, that was my job. So um, I think I should put a PowerPoint together with all the clips from movies and show you those things that aren't actually real. <laughs> That would be awesome, actually. Um, I'd love to know more about the movies that you've worked on. And, and uh, yeah, it sounds fascinating. Um, and I love, well, yeah, it, it is that metaphor, isn't it? That um, you were able to create things that, that look real but weren't. But weren't. <laughs> so, um, what, like... What are you up to now that that kind of is is bringing you joy um, that you're doing more of? And what you plan to do more of this year, actually? Right. Wow, that's such a beautiful way you phrased it. Um, So I'm I'm writing my already writing my next book. Oh, you are. Like I said, when, when I woke up that next morning with the idea for four more stories, I'm like, oh, oh, there aren't enough hours in the day. I mean, I get up at five o'clock in the morning most days. And I'm, because I'm, now I'm think, things like thank you to you that, are, you know, marketing the book that's out. But I'm almost like, can we get this over and done with so I can get back and start writing the next one? And, then, and I'm already thinking about the third and the fourth one. It's, already, it's in my head, but I, I don't have time to get it out on the paper yet. So I, I'm having fun, you know, just writing, which is a great experience. Um, and, um, working with people, I, um, you know, I, I work as a trauma counselor here in Jerusalem, um, online and, and, you know, face to face with people. And, uh, one of the things I'm, I've been working on for a while now is, um, to work with soldiers here. Um, cause we have soldiers, not just, um, you know, the local people, the local national who were serving the army here, but we have kids that come from all over the world. Jewish kids who um, could be in college or partying, they give up two or three years of their lives to come and be, serve in the army here. So they're called lone soldiers. And when Israeli kids go home for the weekend, you know, on, on leave, they can get to go home to mom and see their school friends and get their laundry done and have some home-cooked food. But when these kids who come from London or New York or Johannesburg or Sydney, Australia, when they're on leave, they have nowhere to go. So... Um, 
over the last few years, they've set up a lot of homes for, you know, like um, apartments for them to stay in when they're on leave and um, for host families. So I'm involved in that, like finding them host families so they can have somewhere, you know, like a family situation to go to. Because, I mean, I can't imagine just being in the military, first of all, must be traumatic. Just like if you're a regular teenage kid being so far from home and you're actually here, they are in combat quite regularly, like on the firing line. So they need support. So as a counselor going in and working with these kids who are doing the most amazing thing and to support them in and honoring their service, you know, and then um, giving them the support and, and counseling that they need. So I've, I've been in meetings with them um, with a, a center that's very close to my house. So I'm getting close to because bureaucracy with these kind of organizations, as you can imagine, is, is quite tricky. Um, so that's one other thing that I'm, I'm really excited about and really wanting to do more of. So, um, so between the writing and, and helping people and, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, so there aren't enough hours in the day. Like just getting, you know. And I'm also. Um, you mentioned the the Three Principles Conference in London. I'm also um, one of the organisers with that. So I'm I'm in charge of all the volunteers. So, um, so the last three years I've been involved in the conference, and that's a great um, honour and opportunity. And you know, um, next June we're gonna have we've already booked like tons of amazing speakers. So I hope everybody's gonna come. To that so I will be there you can come and say hello to me I'll be selling my book <laughs> of course I don't think I'm going to be speaking um so uh you know that's that's a, a great amazing thing to look forward to every year also yeah. and for those of you that are listening the three principles is um really when it comes down to how we experience life it's the principles that guide each and every one of us which is mind consciousness and thought and they're all thought effectively but they were broken down into three um, to be able to talk about them in a in a far more simplistic way, um, but I think I've mentioned them in other in other episodes. But if you'd like to know more about the three principles, you can always Google three principles, or you can Google Sydney Banks, who is basically um, the Scottish world that had an epiphany about how he experienced life, and that was kind of where it all stemmed from, really. Um, so Hannah. If someone would love to get in contact with you for whatever reason, maybe it's the work you're doing in Jerusalem, maybe it's the the, the sewing that you do, maybe it's whatever else, you know, want to get hands on your book. Um, how how can they do that? So I have a website. Um, like you're nobody these days unless you have a website, right? <laughs> of course. So it's hannahstudley.com. And there's a link on there to buy my book. Um, it's on Amazon. And, um, so there's a contact page there. So people can email me from that page. And Hannah isn't spelled like you would usually think it would be spelled. It's spelled C-H-A-N-A. Um, because before we actually got on to record this, uh, I was told briefly that, um, <laughs> my deep was, it's not Tana, it's Hannah. I was like, okay. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a, cause it's Hebrew. It's Hannah yeah, like that. if you can't do the sound it's totally fine but yeah it's c-h-a-n-a and then s-t-u-d-l-e-y hannah studley well thank you so much for coming on the show today it was such a blessing and uh yeah it was just such a blessing to have you on and i look forward to seeing you well (laughs) speaking to you soon and for everybody else on the show that's been listening in i hope you had as much fun as we did and until the next time bye bye for now And there you have it, another wonderful episode of The Joy of Being. If you loved what you heard here today and it's been helpful, 
why not subscribe or share the podcast with others? And if you're curious as to how you can experience more joy in your life and feel carefree, then I invite you to download your Joy Catalyst Scorecard at www.marinapearson.com slash scorecard, which will help you identify the joy gaps and what you can do to fill them. And remember, you can find me on Instagram at Marina Pearson or my Facebook group, The Joy of Being. So until next week's episode, remember, you are the joy you seek.